The cars are being lined up in grid order and behind them the Jaguar Firetender ready to start off on the first lap. In a few seconds the International Trophy will be starting and the breed goes now. And it's Depaye trying to punch his way through. But as they come up to the first right-hander at Cops, there, there is James Hunt, throwing up a great ball of spray behind him. Peterson has joined the race. And Brett Lunger, it's Derek Daly! Derek Daly, this is quite incredible. The Formula 3 driver, Derek Daly, in his first Formula 1 race ever, driving the Heskin with the Cosworth V8 engine, has taken the lead in his first Formula 1 race. And he's driving with an absolutely clear track in front of him as he goes down Hangar Street for the first time in this 40-lap race. A quite incredible achievement by this brilliant driver who won the VP Formula 3 Championship last year. Hunt is second and Mario Andretti is in third place. But coming towards us, it is the Olympus Heskett of Derek Daly with that distinctive yellow arrow showing on his helmet. The Irish driver with an enormous amount of grit and determination. And look at the distance that he's pulled out between himself and the brilliant James Hunt. Well, good evening. Good, e- good evening, Derek. Well, evening for us. Lunchtime for you, of course, in the States. How, how are you doing? Great. What a great opening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you, 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 you switched your camera on slightly earlier than planned there, but it actually worked very well because I, I enjoyed watching you watching that, if you, if, if, if you mm. see what I mean. That was, that, 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 that was quite special. Actually, I'm, glad, I'm glad you did that. And uh, Amazingly, Harry, that video... It was probably 20 years before I ever saw the video for the first time. Because remember, back then, if you didn't watch it on live television, how many people had recording devices and and, and had the ability to do it? So it was probably 20 years before I ever saw that video for the first time. It was amazing. Seeing, seeing, and of course, not forgetting hearing, hearing obviously the the incomparable uh, Murray Walker and his, uh, his commentary was fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, Murray Walker introduced me to, to motor racing. In, in Ireland, you'd switch on every Saturday and Sunday, not knowing what might come on, because he did the British Touring Car Championship, the Saloon Car Championship, did everything, in addition to, um, to Formula One. So, so Morris, we, we, we need you to switch your camera on. I think you switched your mic on. Ah, there you are. Ah, there, there Mor- Mor- Morris has appeared. So there's a nice sort of crossover there. because Oh. Very appropriate, Morris. The, uh, the 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 pint of Guinness there. <laughs> it's a real one too. Look at it. It certainly is. What are you? <laughs> I'm not messing about with that. Yeah, that is great. Good to see you, Morris. And you, DD. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm very good. very very good to see you. So, I mean, anybody's uh, Formula One debut is going to be obviously pretty memorable for them, Derek. But I mean, your, yours was uh, was something special. I mean, le- leading James Hunt, and the, the the Formula Three driver Derek Daly, as as as, uh, as as Murray called you. What's your what's your what's your memory to that day? It's amazing to look back on it because while it's actually unfolding, you're not. It, 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 I know it's hard to believe, but, but it's hard to be present in the moment because there's so much happening. So you don't actually remember, you know, every millisecond like I do in, in, in other situations. But I mean, w- when the rain came, 
we always thought it was the great equalizer. And, and for whatever reason, I went well in the rain. Um, but, but the way it unfolded, I mean, I was second going around cops on the first lap. I got, I got such a good start. But uh, I mean, to, just to listen to Murray Walker in, in a sort of shock, <laughs> you know, what? What are we seeing? And I often wonder, you know, if that happened today, you know, you know, where would the driver be? You know, back then, the pits didn't have access to seeing that as it unfolded. So, you know, I, I don't think what actually happened, you know, sinks in as quickly as it does today. Because today, you see everything and you see every time split and you see where the time's made up and you see where the brave guys are and you see where the mistakes are. You know, I, I, I often wondered, you know, if that happened today, would I get an instant call from, you know, from Ferrari or Zach Brown or, you know, somebody. It's just, but it's amazing to go back and see it. It's an amazing piece of history, really. I think an interesting thing about it, Derek, is that it was a non-championship race. It was the International Trophy, of which at the time, we were just coming to the end of that period when there was a proliferation of them during a season. And it was a great occasion for guys like you to get a chance yeah. because the field would not be perhaps, it wouldn't be a full Grand Prix field and it would be a good chance for you to show and then it rains and off you go. And Morris, we've had many a laugh over the years, but that was sponsored by the Daily Express, if you remember. Yeah. So there was a lot of Irish people went over there to, you know, to, to support me. And right before the race, two of them, Larry Mooney uh, and, and Don Kassan, went out and robbed one of the Daily Express banners that was on the side of the racetrack, <laughs> ran onto the grid with it, folded it up so as the eye was no longer visible and D-A-L-Y Express, the banner they stole, was one of the great pictures of them standing beside me on the grid right before the start. I mean, you just can't get stuff like that these days. You know, those unique, you know, uh, you know, storylines that, you know, you can share for the rest of your life. <laughs> that's a great, I didn't know that one. Yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a cracker. That one. I have a great picture of it. Yeah, you must send us the picture, Derek. I'd love to see that. That's, uh, you'd be, be banned for life if you got involved in something like that, uh, that, that these days. Exactly. You would be. Well, you know, Derek, I, I guess, I mean, obviously, motor racing has always attracted wealthy people going, going back many, many, many decades. I mean, these days we've got the, the Lance Strolls and all, all the rest of it who are, you know, brought into Formula One by, by, by their parents. I mean, you, you, you certainly didn't have any of that. And people maybe don't know the story of how you and, and David Kennedy went to Australia and worked in, in an iron ore mine all, all winter to raise £5,000 to be able to go uh, racing in, in, in Formula Ford. I mean, what, 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 are your, what are your memories of that? Those memories are pretty clear. And, and actually, it started for me, I mean, you talk about, you know, we had no motor racing background at all. My dad sold vegetables out of a corner, uh, a grocery shop. Um, but I was walking home from school one day, 12 years of age, walking home and suddenly there was this big green racing truck parked in our neighborhood with Sydney Taylor racing written on it. And Sydney Taylor's sister happened to live in our neighborhood, bought her groceries from my dad and was in there that day. And my dad said, oh, there's a racing car in there. And she said, you can, you can bring Derek, your son, 12 years old, over at seven o'clock tonight and we'll show him the racing car. And then my dad said to me, he says, I'll bring it to see it race tomorrow. It was racing in a place called Dunboyne, a small village on the outskirts of Dublin. And, and that 
when my dad brought me to that race, it was it was typical old Irish village. You sat on a grass bank, the cars went whizzing by, and I remember the noise and the sound and, and the speed and the smells and everything. Because that was the day that changed my life. I, I told my dad right there, I'm, I, I said, I'm not to do. I'm going to be a professional racing driver. Now, remember, Ireland didn't even have a racing circuit at that stage. So that was a bit of a stretch. But I remember that so clearly. Um, and then the only way to start, I mean, go-kart racing was not an option for me. Because I had to buy an expensive go-kart. It might have been, you know, six or 700 pounds back then. I mean, that wasn't an option. And so I started off in, in stock car racing, which is, you know, yeah, people explain, well, well what's stock car racing? It, it was very much, you know, demolition derby type bangers in, in, in our day until you mentioned myself and David Kennedy said, how do we make this legit? How do we, how do we actually get a proper racing car? And that was when the wild idea was, well, what about going to become a laborer in the iron ore mines of Australia? And, 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 and we had two options actually, iron ore mines in Australia or the Alaskan oil pipeline was just coming online. Um, to go to Alaska, you had to pay $1,000 for clothing to keep you warm so you wouldn't die. And they took it out of your pay packet uh, every two weeks, right? In Australia, you just had to cut the sleeves off your shirt and the legs, uh, legs off your pants and you are well-dressed. That was the decision right there. Off we went to Australia. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, 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 I've nothing against Lance Stroll, but um, I, I, I can't imagine him working in, a, in, a, in, a, in an Australian iron ore mine or, 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 or one trick in you. <laughs> as, I, as I say to people, the model is a bit different these days. But the model doesn't have, it doesn't have the storylines that we all lived through in those 70s and 80s um, of a Formula One era. Well, you obviously progressed through the formula and uh, Derek Daly, the Formula 3 driver, as uh, Murray Walker described, you, you you got that into Formula 2. Now, I'm going to hold this up to the camera. Can, can, ah. can, can, can you see that? This little model that sits yeah. on my desk. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. that's the uh, the ICI, obviously ICI-sponsored um, Formula 2 March, yeah. in which you, you, you campaigned in, uh, what probably says it on it, actually, 1979. Uh, 1979, and obviously yeah. that was the springboard uh, to an extent to get you into Formula One. I mean, you'd already raced F1 by, by, by then. Now, it's, it's a little bit like the, the, this is your life, <laughs> but um, we've got a, a chap called Peter Hodgman on the call this evening. Now, Peter was your mechanic in 1979. Do, do, do you, you better say yes. Do, do, you remember, do you remember Peter from back, from back then? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course I do. P P Peter, Peter, do you, do you want to un unmute yourself if, if you're on the call and just sort of say, say hello to uh, say, say to Derek because it's been uh, a long time since you've been there. He is. Look, there's there's Peter. Just unmute yourself, Peter. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, Peter. Go I ahead. You. <laughs> yeah, you'll probably remember me as Poozy, is <laughs> my nickname. And yeah. uh, that year was uh, a really pretty special year with you driving and Stephen South. I think Ron had um, yeah. actually uh, got some money that year, and it was really good. Yeah, my only regret is that you went and did three Formula One races. I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had to miss three of the first five races of the season, and it, it was because of Formula One commitments. I mean, otherwise, I probably had a le legitimate chance at, at, at winning the championship. 
But, but Peter, you, you know, you bring up an interesting time of missing some of those races. Ron Dennis had a wild idea one weekend that if I didn't qualify for the Formula One race, he was going to try and fly me back in a Harrier jump jet from Zandvoort back to England, I think it was, to do the Formula Two race. I mean, that, that, that was Ron Dennis, who was, who was going to look at every possible uh, uh, option um, um, if I was available to get me back to the, uh, to the Formula Two race. Morris, you didn't even know that, did you? No, oh, I didn't. No, <laughs> I never knew it either. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. And uh, I remember the podium uh, when you won the race, the last race at Donington. Yeah. Can you remember who uh, gave you the trophy? I do, John Collins. Collins, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And amazingly, uh, Ken Tyrrell came to that event. And so, so before he left, we sat down and he said, what about you coming to run a third car for us in Montreal and Watkins Glen? Because remember, Morris, the old days when they would run a third car, some of the teams, yeah. bar, you know, young guys like me to see, put them into the actual environment and yeah. see, it was, see what it was like. But Ken was there. But that was, that was I remember Donington so clearly, uh, you know, Guy Edwards, was my manager at that stage. And Guy put the ICI deal together um, for Ron to run. Because I think Ron took over the McLaren uh, the next year, the McLaren Formula One team the next year. So it was a, it was a good I think That might have been Ron Dennis's last race as a Formula Two team owner. I think it was. No, we still did uh, um, Chico Serra and Duchesres uh, in 80. Oh, Okay. But yeah. we were then building the MP41 at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They were good days, Peter. They were they great were. days. Yeah, very good. Yeah, they were. And that, and I hate to say this, but that March was probably the ugliest racing car I've ever raced. <laughs> exactly, it Wasn't was it? terrible. What yes. on earth were they thinking of that nose cone? Awful. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, that, that very front sort of flat, flat nose. It definitely wasn't a, wasn't a particularly pretty car, was it, for yeah, sure? No, no, it was effective, but not pretty. Exactly. That's yeah. a good racing car, though. <laughs> okay, Peter. Well, thank, thanks very much for your input there. If you, you just mute yourself again, that would be great. Good, so re, re, good, really, really appreciate that, you coming in there. <laughs> Cheers. Derek, you had a good win in um, Mugello, wasn't it, in Formula 2? I mean, that was very impressive. That got you a lot of notice yeah 78 and the ici chevron that's a better car yeah 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 that was um the march bmw team were obviously fancied everywhere they went giacomelli uh sure. Sewer, winklehock um um and gotini jello loved the place i mean just a, an amazing uh racetrack and it all went well. I was on the front row. I don't think it was on the pole. It was on the front row. Got a great start. And it ended up with Mark Sewer behind me for the whole race. Every corner, I, was, I could sneak his nose inside. I would just position the car perfectly. But that was, that was, probably, that, that was probably one of the most dominant races of my career, Morris. I don't mean that, that I was far ahead of everybody because I wasn't. I, was, I mean, I was, we, we were tied together. But I felt I could do anything with the car. I could put it anywhere, drive it anywhere, make mistakes, hit the curb, run off, hit the grass, mow the grass, do everything. And I still had total control. 
And I, and I can remember going across the line and Big D, Derek McMahon, who was, you know, a, a large, a large volume of a man and he climbing up onto the pit lane. And I remember his fist in the air like that. And we had some celebration that night. <laughs> but, but if you're going to talk about Big D, Derek McMahon and significant races, I want to just take you back a further year. When you f- first came to notice of a lot of people in Formula One, and, and a lot of Formula One journalists, when you won in Austria, the support race in Formula Three, do you remember that? I and, do, and, I do. At the Osterreich ring. Yes. And, and you yeah. talk about things being different at the International Trophy. At that race, is an Austrian Grand Prix, and Derek McMahon had brought his caravan into the Formula One paddock. Can you believe that? And you guys <laughs> were at the end of the Formula One paddock. You win the race. Yeah, and Big D comes wandering down the paddock and says, "You boys have got to come up here and meet this fella, Derek Daly." And I had to <laughs> get all the journalists up, and he was giving us all beer, and we all met you, and everybody thought, "What a fine fellow you were." Well, and, and if 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 you remember the the when I mentioned I was twelve years of age, and I went to see a fella called Sidney Taylor race at Dunboyne in Ireland, so. I, I do the British Grand Prix F3 race, and it turns into myself and Stephen South had a barnstormer of a race. I was leading, Stephen South was second, and he was actually faster than I was, so I actually had to block him. And I made a slight mistake into Beckett's. He drew alongside me. As we turned left to go down the hangar straight, I knew he was going to try and crowd me out to make me back off. And if I backed off, then the race is over, he was going to win. Well, I didn't back off. And so we came, hit wheels. Stephen South flew up in the air, spun around and said later that I tried to kill him. The reason, I, the reason I tell you that is I was in tears telling Derek McMahon what happened and pleaded with Derek, we have to go to the Austrian Grand Prix. I can win one of these races. Because remember, I had not won a Formula 3 race at that stage. I said, we have to go to the F3 race. Off we go. Uh, myself and Neil, my mechanic, in the in the calmer walkthrough with the concrete blocks on the wooden planks to roll the car in and out of the back of it. Off we go, um, set up camp there, and I qualify on the pole beside Nelson Piquet. I'm in the car on the pre-grid, and I'm just you know waiting for everything to happen. And I see this old guy with a limp and a shuffle, sort of shuffle up to Big D, and he said something to him. And Big D comes around to me, he says, hey, that fellow there said, if you win this race, he, he's going to put you into a Formula One car by the end of the year. I said, who was it? He said it was Sidney Taylor. <laughs> Same guy when I was 12 years of age, the very first racing car I ever saw, which was a Brabham BT8. Went out, had a barnstormer of a race of PK. Um, uh, PK led initially and coming to the What's the last right-hander? Is it the, is it the Jochen Rint curve? The, the Rint curve, yeah. The old Jochen Rint curve. Yeah. yeah. I could see, I could, I was right behind Nelson Piquet. Nelson made a tiny mistake turning in, so just got a tiny bit sideways. I was up the inside of him, went on, won the race, and six weeks later, true to his word, I was in a Formula One car. Now, remember, that was only 13 months after I was doing Formula Ford in England. I won the British Formula Ford Championship in October 76. And in November 77, I was in a Formula One car, having gone through Formula Two, Formula Three, Formula Two, and Formula One in that compressed time frame. It was just, it was just amazing. Now, Morris, let me just add another piece. 
We were sponsored that weekend by Jim Beam Whiskey. Big D turned the rear wing of the Chevron into a bar to serve everybody who came down the paddock free That's Jim it. Beam Whiskey. <laughs> That's what it was. That's I remember there was something we had yeah. alcohol. And the yeah. boys had to go and write their reports and they were half pissed thanks to Big D. <laughs> And I can tell you lots of stories, but remember the old days we stayed in people's homes and in chalets because there yeah. wasn't enough hotels around there. So at the end of the night, Big D is drunk. He's singing to everybody in the paddock. We get a lift and get dropped off in this village. We had to walk down the village to wherever we were staying. And Big D singing in the middle of the night. And this old lady opens up this window two or three stories up and shouts out something at him in German. And of course, he looks around, puts his arms out straight and starts singing and serenades her. Well, she threw a bucket of water over him. <laughs> and then he began to smell and sniff and rub his hands and realized she threw the bedpan over him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. <laughs> oh, Big D, there were so many great stories of Big D. So you, yeah. you, you, you mentioned going into Formula One and the first exploits with the Theodore, or with the, um, the Hesketh, right? The Theodore testing at Goodwood and then the first race was the Hesketh. Which was a difficult way to make your debut, wasn't it? Because you, you, you had to go to Long Beach, was it? Um, and then Monaco? Yeah, I don't remember. Monaco was the last race, Long Beach. There might have been one in the middle somewhere. Been, yeah. Anyway, Hesketh folded up. And so I went back to Formula Two and stayed there. Then won at Mugello, as you said. Then won the next weekend at Vallelonga. So suddenly I, I win the fifth and sixth races of the European Championship. And I got a call from Mo Nunn um, that uh, Jackie Yicks didn't want to drive the Ensign anymore. Uh, and what I want to have a run in it. And the first race was the British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, which is an amazing place to make a Grand Prix debut. And an altogether better proposition for you from the point of view of car. And even though it was a small team, it was just yeah, a compact and better run, wasn't it? I mean, it was what's your memory such, of Motown? What's your memory such of a good car, the Ensign. Really good. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the fastest car, but it was... It was what I would say easy to drive. It was just a, and Mo Nunn was, a, he was just a great, he was a, he was a great guy. Mm. Good engineer. I mean, could you relate to him? Were you, were, did you consider yourself fairly good technically? Could you work out what you want to do with the car or did you? No, I wasn't good enough. Right. Um, I wasn't good enough. And I think that was, that was a bit of a hindrance. Uh, I, I think Morris, half the reason why I struggled, I quite frankly, I got to Formula One too fast. I, I never learned about how to engineer or tune or, you know, you know, bigger racing cars as I went on. Cause I just, I mean, I literally jumped from formula Ford to formula one. And remember in those days, you didn't have coaches, you didn't really have, uh, you didn't have data. You didn't have a fleet of engineers who could actually read everything, no matter what you said, read everything and sort the car out. So it, you know, it's 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 very different these days when you have all that support from the data, from the engineers, from the sensors, etc. So you you mentioned then Tyrrell uh, took you on for 1980. That must have been a different kettle of fish in that you would have had more liaison with uh, with Ken. And oh my God! <laughs> so so I've, I've I've just started screen screen sharing, and, and you can see these two gentlemen there, Derek on the left, Morris in the middle. If if my arithmetic is correct, that's forty one years ago, guys. That photograph was taken. 
Jesus. That's, yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're, um, we're, we're both in a bit of shock, aren't we, TD, listening to Ken? Because when Ken spoke, you had to listen. No question. Yeah, Ken was an, a really interesting, a really interesting man. I mean, he was a nurturer of talent, but I think he contained what he really wanted to say sometimes until he just had to have an explosion. And I remember at the Dutch Grand Prix, we were both in the, the new Tyrrell, the 010. And the car actually handled well, and it was reasonably well balanced, but we were in the back half of the grid. And when I asked myself and Jerry about the car, and we didn't really have major complaints, well, suddenly he erupted into a froth job because he could not grasp a um, process that we could actually have a reasonably good, well-balanced car and not be at the front of the grid. And, and so, you know, that, that, was, that was the two sides of Ken. Then he would flip back into the nurturing side of him again. But I mean, you know, he was, he was, he was one of the legends. He was one of the great legends of the sport, the great storytellers, great, great, great man. That, that, that particular race, Derek, was fairly spectacular for lots of reasons. Um, one of which was, as you say, you started from the back of the grid because of a problem with the car. You made up 10 places on the first lap and you, yeah. were really, you were really going well. And then something happened with the front disc. So tell us the story from then on. Yeah, so, so this was Zandvoort 1980. This was the first time I actually thought I was going to die in a racing car. I, I, I actually, you know, dying was a re realistic outcome of the accident that was unfolding. So long straight, 190 plus miles an hour into Tarzan, hit the brakes, um, you know, going well. And in those days, the brake discs were drilled for, for lightweight and for cooling. Well, during the course of the race, cracks appeared between the drill holes. A big chunk of the brake disc fell out. I hit the brake pad and it started to shudder as the pads went in and out of this brake disc, the, the hole that the brake disc now had. And within half a second, the brake caliper broke off the, the wheel. It broke the front wishbone. The rear left front wheel folded back. And of course, the car was going to sail off the road into the, into the barrier at, at, at uh, Zandvoort. And so have you ever heard the term, you know, where your life slows down and goes in front of you in, in clear video? It was the first time in my life I ever saw that. So I now know I'm going to crash. I remember thinking, well, I hope the team saw what happened here because this wasn't my mistake. And I'm still on the road and the car begins to go into slow motion. And I actually saw myself and my brother when we were about 10 years of age running around the garden at our house at home in the very first pair of jeans that my mother ever bought us. And then I actually saw my mother sitting by the fire in Ireland and the phone rings and she says, that's Derek on the phone, right? And now the car skipping across the, the grass and right before impact, I, I, the, the fear of dying came across me and I actually felt the pain of my broken legs before I ever had impact. And then I hit so hard, the car, if you remember Morris, it flipped upside down yeah. It flew right past the Michelin man who was running out in the, in, in, in the big uh, uh, advertising hoarding that they had in those days. And it went backwards outside the track. And when it landed, the, 
the back of the car was outside the guardrail and the front was propped up and I was looking up into the sky when it landed and was all went quiet. And I'm thinking, where am I? <laughs> and I started to do the normal racing driver, uh, feet, toes, ankles, legs, arms, and I could feel everything. And suddenly Piedad, do you remember Piedad, Emerson's doctor? Domingus, Domingus. Domingus, Domingus. He appeared to my right side, literally jumped up on the guardrail, jumped up on the tires, stuck his head into the, in, into the cockpit and said, Derek, are you okay? What he thought happened, he, he thought I broke my neck because when the car flew through the air, I relaxed. And when it landed with a thump, my head went swirling around the cockpit. And, and, and Dominguez thought I, I, I broke my neck. And so I couldn't get out of the car. So they dragged me out, pulled me because the car had folded up and my feet were stuck between the, the, the uh, um, um, steering rack. When they got me out, stood me up. All I remember is the world suddenly twirled and I fainted. And, 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 and that was the first time I ever actually thought, actually thought I was going to die. And the sequel, Morris, you know, you back in the day. So they take me to hospital. Uh, before you I, say that, before you, before you say the hospital bit, there's something that you've forgotten because I read you were, you were talking about this the other day. Yeah. And the, sequel, the in between bit is at that moment, I was standing on the inside of Tarzan because in those days when you were a journalist, you couldn't, there was no computers, nothing you had to. Watch yeah. out on the track side and keep a lap chart if you want to yeah. Yeah. the race. Yeah. I'm standing on the inside of Tarzan with Nigel Roebuck, right? We yeah. see your accident happen in front of us. We think you're dead. You have to be. Yeah. And as you say, you, miraculously, you get out of the car, you're on, then you disappear yeah. because you've, you've keeled over and we can't see you, right? Yeah. And we think, oh, my God, what, what's happened to the poor boy? Next thing you're up on your feet. And in those days, you were allowed to run across the track. I mean, you're not. Allowed to <laughs> and you cross the track because you wanted to go back to the pits towards us and you came yeah. over to us and you started telling us what happened and then you say by the way who's leading and you were you were <laughs> couldn't believe what you were saying and you you mean you you were that color you were white mate yeah. you were absolutely white yeah and then yeah. you went off because you'd injured your foot and i carry on then you went to the medical center and then carry and on and the amazing thing was i remember in hd video every microsecond of the accident unfolding, but yet I don't remember that because that was when you go into this foggy zone where you're not really present in the moment. But I went to, somehow I went to a hospital because I needed stitches on my left leg. I go to the hospital, get whatever and don't. When I came back, Morris, everybody had left the track and my clothes were thrown in the corner in a motorhome. Nobody, nobody cared, just move on. If, if, you know, if he's gone, well, we let the phone will be ringing and we'll have our seat filled for next year, whoever it was. I was just, it was one of those, you know, amazingly cold hearted times of F1, you know, yeah. And, and, and if you are okay, well, you know, make yourself, you know, make your way home as best you can. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's surprising in a way because, because the Tyrrell were quite family, weren't they? I mean, they were mm -hmm. a small knit, close-knit operation yeah. and Ken and yeah. Nora running the team. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. I don't, yeah. I don't know what yeah. happened there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you, also in that year, you, you two guys collaborated actually. So I have another photograph here for you. So have you seen, you've, you've obviously seen that one before Derek, cause you've signed <laughs> that. <laughs> Best wishes to Morris. Derek. So hey, Mar what, hey, hey, Mossy, do we both have hair pieces on there? Or? <laughs> we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. 
Never mind me. Look at you. My God. Yeah. Where was that? Any idea where that was? That's that's Monaco, actually. That's the Monaco. pit lane in Monaco. Morris Philippe on the left side, is it? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Committed suicide not too long after that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Morris Hamilton was writing my column in for the Sunday Press. Was it the oh, Sunday yeah. Press? That, that, that's a story, Derek. Remember because that? Of course, is where you became airborne again at the first corner uh, <laughs> on that weekend. Remember? So I'm. Uh, at that, I remember. In the back. The first corner and landed on your teammate. My God. Tell us a story about that. Remember it clearly. Now, Zandvoort was not my fault. Monaco was 100% my fault. And again, I, I remember it in such clear uh, microsecond um, uh, um, uh, frame by frame. Um, I, I, I qualified, I, I want to say I was 12th. I think I was 12th, but I was on the outside for the first corner. And as I sat on the grill, I thought, you know, the safest place would be to the inside. If somehow on the run to the first corner, I could slide into the inside, it would be the safest place to be to drive around Sandabot and go up the hill. And so I would go off the start, everything's screaming and shouting and squealing and tires and rubber. And Patrese was on my right-hand side and he lagged a little bit. And as he lagged, I just looked to see was there enough room ahead of him for me to go alongside and slot into the right. Well, I'm looking at Patrese when Giacomelli on my left side is on the brakes. I look back, and I mean, this is now microseconds. I look back, see Giacomelli's on the brakes, already know I am going to hit him. I was, I was quite a distance from him, but I knew at the pace I was going, from what I could see, I processed, I'm actually going to hit him. So before I hit him, I said, I'll hit him. I'll break or bend the front wings. I'll drive straight to the pits, replace with nose cone, and off I go. Happens many times. So I, I hit the back of him. But instead of just bouncing straight back, his big rear tire, because we had big tires in those days, big yeah. rear tire was like a conveyor belt. So I hit him and he bounced me up in the air. And so as I bounced back down, he's still on his brakes. I bounced down on top of his right rear wheel, which continued to rotate. So now it actually set me up like a conveyor belt. The bottom of my chassis is now rolling up across his rear wheel and it's pushing me straight up into the air. And then it tipped over onto the nose. And I remember when it went onto the nose because I actually laid clear, perfect focus on the pebbles of the road because I thought I was going to land on my head. And I was working out how to scrunch down in the cockpit. But instead of going straight forward onto the roll bar, it fell sideways. Well, it fell sideways and, and, and Prost had just arrived in the McLaren. So it fell sideways right onto his rear wheel. And now it's like a trampoline. It goes boing. So it trampolines me into a half cartwheel and I arrive out of the sky on top of my teammate Jerry's front wheel, which again was like another trampoline. So I went conveyor belt, boing, boing, trampoline, two and a half cartwheels out into the middle of sand devote. I started 12th. I was now running sixth but I had no wheels that I could use. <laughs> but here's the funny thing, Morris. So I jumped out and Jarier had already gone to Giacomelli and grabbed him by the lapels and was ripping strips off Jarier for causing the crash. And I'm thinking, oh, I might get away with this. <laughs> and then I thought, you know what? The chances are there's live television, there's slow-mos, there's everything. <laughs> um, and so 
Blessed then runs up to me and starts shouting some sort of obscenities at me and I was doing everything wrong. Anyway, I go back to Ken and I tell Ken, hey, I'm sorry, that was, that, that was my fault. He never spoke to me for the next two weeks. No. Because I mean, you know, you don't realize it at the time, but Monaco to take both cars out. As it happened, Mars, Candy could never have dreamed that they would get to global coverage and every year there's a significant anniversary at Monaco, which is whether it's 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is. Guess what video shows up as one of those memorable moments? So it, so it, was, it, was, it was a historical moment and Candy got more coverage than they could have ever dreamed about from an incident that was, it was such a simple beginning, uh, but clearly 100% my fault. Yeah, we had to do that column, as you said, and you had an apartment in Monaco at that time, and your mum right was, above Sand of Oak. and you were they were they your mum and dad were watching. They saw it happen yeah. down below, and yeah. then the Monday morning I went up to write the column with you, and I got you to explain what happened. And I remember you said, "Okay," you said, "Right, Giacomelli," and you got you had a box of tissue. You said, "You're Giacomelli," and you gave the box of tissue to me, and then you had a Lotus seventy eight model. And you said, this is me in the racing car. <laughs> give a demonstration of what happened. And you give me a yeah. description of what you just said. So we're going to get out of it. And, you know, interesting times there because my mother and father had never been on an airplane in their life. Yeah. And I flew them to Monaco that weekend. First airplane that I'd ever been on. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. 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 So after Tyrrell, you went on to to Williams and uh, Derek. I was up at the Williams factory do, doing the tour and the, and the museum, and your 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 name is up there. Did did yeah. you know they spelt it wrong for a while? They spelt it with an E. <laughs> they, had to, they had to take the E out. Yeah, so it's not. I think I think it's now 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 now, now corrected. So I mean, obviously brilliant to have driven for the Williams team, but at the same time, I guess a, a sort of fr fr frustrating year for you. Really, it didn't didn't go as well as you'd have maybe hoped. Yeah, it didn't go well. A lot of it was my fault. Um, and at the end of the year, the, the, um, the U.S. Grand Prix was in Vegas at the end of the year. Um, and, you know, I knew the writing was on the wall. Uh, and then I, I got a call, I don't know from who, to see would I be interested in doing an IndyCar race at Phoenix, which was two weeks after the U.S. Grand Prix in Vegas. And I went there and... and a, a Formula One car from zero to 100 miles an hour was quicker than an Indy car. But an Indy car from 100 to 200 miles an hour was much faster than a Formula One car. And so I thought this was an intriguing piece of kit. And when the turbocharger came on and you had 850 horsepower, it was a real kick to drive these things. And I thought I really would like to do the Indy 500. And literally by accident, uh, on, on a whim, a bit like how we went to Australia, I arrived in Indianapolis, uh, um, uh, having done one race in Atlanta, and I thought I, I want to do the Indy 500, and I'm, and I'm going to go home. That'll, you know, that'll be it. And I never left. Just met some interesting people, and just began a completely different life in a, you know, in, in, in a country that I'd always loved since I started to go there to, to, to Long Beach. And amazingly, I still uh, live in Indianapolis today. Did, so you we, find, we, did you find after Formula One, IndyCar much more accommodating and, and easier for you to, to make progress? Was there a big yes. comparison? Yes. Yeah, very much so. D a different world. Just, 
uh, and, and it's it's the same today. It's the very same today. I mean, Formula One is still you know the greatest uh, form of racing in the world, um, with, with with the best drivers in the world, the best technicians, the best engineers, the best development. I mean, everything about it. IndyCar is 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 very much a spec series, but very similar uh, paddock to the old days. Everybody will help you. Uh, which is, you know, which probably not the case in uh, in Formula One. Mm. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, sorry, Harry, just to, uh, on IndyCar, of course, Michigan, I mean, you, you had a lot of accidents along the way and you, you, you were very lucky to survive the Zambrot one particularly, which we've, we've spoken about. But but uh, it, it, the one at Michigan, that was horrific, wasn't it? I mean, you were very, very yeah. fortunate to survive that. Was, that. that was a monster. I mean, I, I tell people I was never hurt. I don't call, I don't consider getting stitches being hurt, but I was never hurt until Michigan. And the problem with, with Indy cars in those days is they still have the concrete wall around the outside. So if you hit, if you did lose control and you were doing, you know, 215 or 220 miles an hour, the chances are you're going to have a big crash. And, and I was lucky you know, it's a bit of an oxymoron to say you were lucky that, that you weren't killed. But, but, but I sh in, under normal circumstances, I should have been killed because it was, the, it was the hardest crash impact a driver had ever survived at that time. But luckily, the car, it was, it was an 84 March. Um, it, it went in so perfectly into the wall that it concertinaed right from the nose and folded up like an accordion right back to my hips. And then it broke off. Without the perfect hit, I may not have dissipated all of the energy the way it did because it went in so perfectly. And when the car, when the front broke off the car and I'm now strapped to the back of it with my arms and my legs splayed out because the car is still spinning at 150 miles an hour, trying to throw me out, but I'm strapped in. The car was now about to go back into the outside wall with no front on it. So that's certain fatal injuries. When John Paul Jr. saw the crash and said, I have to miss this. And the only way I'll miss it, he says, I have to go right up close to the wall. And so he goes up close to the wall to miss me. And as I go for a second hit on the wall, he hits me sideways, turns the car around and spins it down to the inside. I mean, just an, an unbelievable set of circumstances. And and that and that you know then that then after that it was it was it was you know I had I ended up with nineteen different surgeries, bone grafting, uh, skin grafting, uh, broken hip joint, pelvis, ribs, double compound fracture of the leg, amputations. Um, uh, but but the amazing thing about the circumstances of that accident is at the end of the year the IndyCar race was in Vegas. I went in a wheelchair, did an ESPN interview, which is television, cable television here. And that ESPN interview turned into a 10 year contract. Oh, Suddenly okay. they wanted to pay me to talk about television while, while I'm in recuperation. So a whole other career started and was off to the one side. I got back to racing full time about two and a half years later, did IndyCar, then fell into the best sports car teams in the business with Jaguar and Nissan. Uh, got back to winning races again, winning Sebring 12 hours twice. And then after I won that twice, the buzz of winning just wasn't the same. So after winning and realized the buzz wasn't the same, I thought this is the beginning of the end. 
and I've already got another television, another career going in television, which went on for another 24 years. So it was just remarkable circumstances that fell in line, all because of the move to America. I mean, I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't, it was, it was amazing. As, as, you're, as you're showing to us, Derek, the, the art of the gift of speaking uh, is very natural to you. Uh, but you, you've had actually made another living out of public speaking. You do a lot of that uh, motivational talking. Do you base do. that on your racing? What do you base that on? Yes, very much based on the racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, if you think about the sport that we're all involved in, um, it's exacting human performance that operates under pressure in compressed timeframes. Now, tell me a business who wouldn't want to understand that model today. And then when you lay the foundation that, that this sport almost killed me, but here's the reasons I went back to it. I went back to it because I never wanted my accident to be the legacy that I would leave. And legacy, we're all in control of the legacies that we leave everywhere, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our business. And so it's a real easy connection for me to make to any audience. Would you like to understand this model? And that, that keynote speaking career, Morris went on for, uh, it was, there was almost an 18 year overlap of television broadcasting into that. In fact, I just did two in Cancun, Mexico, uh, three weeks ago. And unfortunately I had to stay in the resort for six days. Can you imagine that? Uh, how, how rough that was. Oh, you poor soul. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I remember what, one, of the, one of the very powerful points you make, I've seen some of your motivational speaking, is it's a point you just made a couple of minutes ago, Derek, which is that, you know, you talk about the Michigan crash and the, the multiple injuries and the surgeries and all the rest of it, but you you actually, the, the, the most important international motor races that you won actually came after the accident. Right, right. And and, and that was that was the key because when I was 12 years of age, when I told my dad I wanted to become a racing driver, my dad told me two things. He said, I'll help you in every possible way, as long as you don't need financial help. I completely understand that. And then he said, remember, you'll always be responsible for the legacy that you leave in the sport, which meant nothing to me until I got hurt. And suddenly it all came into focus and I couldn't have that be the legacy. So I had to recover. I had to get back racing. I had to do everything possible to get back into a racing car. And I had to become successful because then I was in control of, 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 of uh, leaving the sport on my terms. And that would be more the legacy rather than the accident, you know, just kicking me out of the sport. So it's, it's you know, there's, we've all been around racing and Morris, your whole life was following Formula One. And, and, and you know, you, you are a witness to immense talent doing great things. But all of us that got to Formula One, I mean, there's a whole group of us like Warwick and Brundle and Blundell and Johansson and a whole other guy who got there and never won races. But the platform the sport gave us to do a whole variety of things in life and potentially influence other people. I am so grateful for that because you meet so many people that are friends for life you get an opportunity to do things that would never have happened but for the sport. And I'm just so thankful that I got an ability to influence people using the sport that I you know, found when I was 12 years of age. So you know, I, I, have, I have nothing to complain about or, or, or regret. And you've had a new emotion, I fancy, with watching your son 
leading the Indianapolis 500. This is something yeah. different again. Tell us about Morrison, that. I'm, go- I'm going to come on to Connor in a second, actually, but if we just, just pause on Connor just for two ticks, because yeah. Derek, you, you, as you mentioned, you, you, you retired and you retired, I think, for, for exactly 20 years. And then uh, who, who, who actually came knocking um, but, uh, but, but me? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I invited you, as you recall, to come and race with me at the at the Goodwood Revival. Now we'd never met or even spoken, and this guy just out of the blue contacted you and said, "Derek, I've got an entry with the Goodwood Revival. Will you come over and race with me?" I mean, you, you can tell me that was that was nine years ago now. So, I mean, what 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 was your reaction when you when you suddenly got that call from me? I loved everything about Goodwood, and my hope is that you have another car and you call me again, and we yeah. go back and race again. Because Goodwood, to me, I was just, I mean, look, just look at it. Look, yeah. it transports you back into true period in everything that, oh, how people dressed. I mean, just look at that grid lineup. Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah. And I've been asked to do many, many historical races. I've never done one except uh, when you called me, Harry, and, and, and we did it. Did we do it twice in this? And then I did it in... Uh, uh, did, you did, did it in a Mercedes I, I think, three uh, times after that yeah 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 so um yeah we we we, we had a we had a midfield running car we were, we were never going to win it but I mean we ran in the midfield and we, we fin- finished 12th and we did a talk with Derek Bell the other night and we we, we actually beat we actually beat Derek Bell so so that was that was a bit of a scalp <laughs> that we took but uh, you could you can see your uh your obviously your, your helmet with a with a famous sort of arrow there in the uh, yeah. in, in, in in the sunbeam there so Good that was, uh yeah, that was that was a great experience, and also thanks for coming over. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed working with you. It was a great uh, a great weekend, I have to say. Good crack. So, so we were going to then go on to talk about um, your uh, son. Then, now let me just quickly screen share again. Keep doing this, okay? So, so there we go. So, can you see that? I can. So, so there's Connor, obviously in uh, with a tiny little rear wing with the the car very much in Indianapolis specification. You know, Derek, I was speaking to this guy the other day as a Formula One fan, whatever, and I said, "Oh, just watch the Indy 500; it was fantastic." He said, "Oh, I, I wouldn't watch that. It's just cars just going round and round." I mean, how how wrong is that? When I sit down and watch the Indy 500, I sit down for three hours and I don't move. It is yeah. fascinating the tactics, the fuel stops, the full course yellows, and everything. It's you know for British audience, I mean, it really is fantastic entertainment. You agree? Uh, I, oh, obviously I do. And I I knew nothing about oval track racing until I literally got a baptism of fire. Jump in. Um, it's the most difficult form of racing, and it can be the most satisfying form of racing. Because when you race at 225 miles an hour um, and you slipstream and you pull out and you can pass and somebody else passes you, it's what you imagined racing would be um, uh, side by side. And that's what they have at Indy. I mean, the sheer velocity of these things. When you stand anywhere close to the outside safety fence and the, the the velocity of these things when I go by I mean it absolutely takes your breath away and so this year you know in particular to see Connor um lead more laps than anybody else I mean it was a kick it was a kick because I mean he struggled to get established and he's there thereabouts but hasn't quite been able to you know get himself in in, in a position of consistency but I mean he had a rocket ship uh, 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 this year there, and it was just you know. And when I go to watch this, I don't. I, I I put my headset on. I have the radio broadcast, and I have Connor's broadcast, 
and I stand by myself. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want anybody to prod me and ask questions. I get a big screen TV in front of me and then as, 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 uh, as high a view of the whole racetrack as I can and just, uh, just enjoy it. But it was, it, was, it was amazing this year. It really was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ed Carpenter Racing is, is obviously pr- pretty good, but it's not really one of the front-running teams. And I, I guess, obviously, the hope is that Connor can progress to Ganassi or Penske or whatever. Is that, is that the sort of the, the, the dream, I guess? I mean, that would definitely be uh, an assist. Um, there's no doubt consistency. Uh, of, 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 of results. If you look back on Andretti or Ganassi or Penske, I mean, they take the lion's share of the spoils. So if you're, if you're in one of those cars, your chances are higher of, of success. So yeah, that would, be, that, would be, that would be amazing if he could get in there. So, so Morris, you, you were going to mention something about Connor there, sorry, and I um, diverted you. No, no, no. I was just wanting to know, uh, I mean, how Derek felt a, a totally different emotion to see your boy lead the Indian Atlas 500 of all the great races in the world. It's, it's the one that really means a lot. And he led it really, really well. That's, that's the thing. It wasn't one of those sort of lucky circumstance thing. And yeah. he was up front. From the point of view of getting sponsorship, D.D., uh, does that improve things a lot by having the boy lead so many laps? Does that help a lot? Um, yes, it helps. But, I mean, everything in racing is driven by sponsorship these days. Yeah. Um, you either have family money, and, and as you can see, family money is now creeping into Formula One, uh, um, or, or you go out and solicit sponsorship yourself. And Connor actually uh, developed this relationship with the U.S. Air Force himself. He, he, he was responsible for bringing that to the team. So, uh, and that race is the biggest one in the world. And, and, and they had the U.S. Air Force do the flyover and, and the, uh, a couple of years ago, the first female fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force was on the grid beside him. So as you can imagine, you know, Memorial Weekend in America is very military driven. So to have the U.S. Air Force leading um, a, a race like that, 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 that was big. That, that was big. And hopefully that will, you know, help him continue with that type of support because, you know, he needs to stay in it. He needs to be consistent. Yeah, so I don't think the Indy cars that, uh, from what I can tell, they, they don't race on the super speedway so much. I mean, they, they, they don't seem to go to Michigan and that where where, where you had the, the big crash. Is that, is that right? They, they they don't do that anymore. No, just just the Indy 500. That's the only super speedway. They do uh, a one mile oval, which is in St. Louis, and then and then and then and then and then and then I don't think they go anywhere else. They might, but I don't. I don't think they go anywhere else. Overtrack racing. As good as it is and as entertaining as it is to watch, people don't go anymore. You know, the, the younger people don't have an interest in that type of stuff anymore. And they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, work out what the magic formula is to get people back interested. But, but young people are not interested in cars, period, like we were when we were growing. We're lucky we didn't have iPads and cell phones when we were growing up. So you see, you see ra- racing on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a bit of a d- decline in, in, in the States. And generally, I mean, NASCAR is still huge, though, isn't it? NASCAR is not as big as it was. But in fairness, you have to wait for COVID to completely shake out to see what it comes back like. Um, but, I mean, since the split of IndyCar in 96, it's never, ever recovered. It never, ever came back as big and as strong as it was. 
No, I mean, I, I must say, uh, I was over a lot when Nigel Mansell was doing it in 94, 1994. And those cars of that era were fantastic. The best looking cars, greatest racing that I've ever seen. I went to places like Milwaukee. Yeah. Forever. You know, you're talking about memories that you've got that we were very fortunate to have, TD, in, yeah. in our various walks of life. And, and yeah. that season of IndyCar racing that I did then was wonderful. Just brilliant racing then. You know, when I look back on, on eras, the 80s era of Formula One had a, had a magic and a romance to it because people like James Hunt and Ronnie Peterson and Nicky Leda were still there. But I think the 90s era of Mansell, Senna, Prost, PK, I, I still think that is maybe the greatest era of, uh, of Formula One. Just think of some of the stuff that went on, particularly with Mansell. It was amazing. And then the same thing happened at, at IndyCar when he came over here but can you imagine mansell to move to indycar it was a legitimate career move it wasn't somewhere to go to retire and make a bit of money for the next couple of years it actually was was a legitimate threat to formula one to the point where bernie ecclestone was losing potentially global advertising dollars to indycar and that's when he had the fia create a new rule that says if indycar raced in europe it could only be in an oval track i mean that's how big a threat indycar was and then it, the split came with Tony George's actions in 96 and never recovered. No. Never, ever recovered after that. No, the disaster. Do you watch Formula One regularly now, D.D.? Every race, every practice session, every qualifying session. Yeah. And, and the one thing I want, the one marketing ploy that I want, I want Max Verstappen to wear orange gloves and orange boots. Can you imagine as much support as he he has now. He raised his orange glove to his to his beloved fans. I just I just love this whole orange machine. Actually, talking about symbolism, which that is, and Harry just referred to it. They referred to your helmet with a distinctive arrow on it. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I don't know what uh, I don't know what Connor's helmet colors are, but the, the the crash helmets that they seem to wear today, I don't identify anybody. I don't know who's who, apart from one or two that are obvious. Would you agree? I mean, that's your that's your that's your signature, isn't it? It's your brand. Drivers don't have brands these days, and they, the drivers don't even realize that. I mean, Connor's the same. Connor's base color is black, and he's got green. He, he he had green arrows, but he'd change it to red, and he'll change it to white base. And I don't even know who's in the car at times. Yeah, but I think it's a huge mistake that drivers have lost the ability to brand themselves. Lewis Hamilton doesn't have a brand today, because the the brand I remember was when he had yellow, which was a tribute to Ayrton Senna. And, and, and now they have the, probably the most famous helmet painter designer uh, in our helmet painter in America is Troy Lee. And so everybody says, oh, look at my Troy Lee design. It's, it, it, it's very fancy. He's got all these colors. But as you go by his speed, it looks like a blur of nothing. And so instead of the drivers building their own brand, all they're doing is building the brand of the helmet painter. It's a huge mistake. Huge mistake. But Valtteri Bottas has no has no brand. Rosberg has no brand. Um, um, yeah, I just I just I just hate. And Bernie Ecclestone had the right idea. Remember, he said you can have one helmet change and that's it. Yep. You know why? Because he knew he knew they were throwing their brand away. And even today, when I look at uh, Formula One races, I'm forever looking to uh, I'm looking at the helmets, color schemes, and I don't even know who's in the car at times. No. 
Yeah. yeah. The audience shouldn't have to work hard to follow their own favorite driver. Well, no, the number should be clear, the name or something should be so you know what you're looking at. Because, you know, you go to a race, a, a, a casual observer comes to a Grand Prix now and they're, they're going past at speed, he will not have a clue. There's no, you can't see the numbers, nothing. Had no idea. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big failing not to build the brand of the driver from the early days. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, George Russell, right? George Russell, to me, has red, predominant red on his helmet. When he drove the Mercedes, when he drove the Williams recently, he changed it to black. Mm. So it looked like Hamilton and it looked like uh, Botas and it looked like everybody else that had a black helmet. I just, it's such a mistake to, mm. to not build your brand. No, I'm I'm old school in that as well. I I I like the uh, the identifiable helmets for yeah. that for sure. So we we we've just gone over the hour. Um, there's a bit of bit of chat go, going on. Any any uh, questions that any uh, of the uh, participants have uh, uh, for, uh, for 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 Derek? Um, Tim, have you got anything in the uh, the comments or the or, or or the chat box? Um, not a lot. We had one from Robin Cordry. Uh, when Derek left Williams, were any other F1 teams interested in hiring you? Um, I could have gone to Arrows at the time, um, but I wasn't interested. I tested the IndyCar. Um, I got divorced at the end of that year, and I just wanted a complete break and a change, and America was where I was going to get that, so it was a no-brainer to move to America. Anything else from, uh, from 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 you, Morris? I mean, we 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 normally wrap up around around about the hour, but um... uh, no, just just to say, um, well, getting back, can I just ask you, Derek? You, you watch every Grand Prix uh, and every practice session and so on. Uh, do you agree with me that the thing that bothers me is that you've got the best, arguably the best, racing cars in the world, and they can't overtake each other. They can't run in close company because of the reliance on aerodynamics and all sorts do you think it's got too technical i mean i know you can't stop technical events but yes what would you do about it i would um so i'm guessing there's hundreds of sensors on a formula one car my first rule is you can only have 10. Okay. um i would cut down uh um on the amount of information you can get because uh, engineers are driving cars now um and aerodynamically, I mean, the big test is when the new rules come out in 2021, yeah. Yeah. right? How many, times, how many times have you seen a disaster that they've completely changed the rules and then say, oh, didn't work. So I'm, hope, I'm hoping this works. Yeah. And, and work out a way to get rid of these track limit white lines. There are too many penalties. You, you can't expect gladiators to be racing drivers when you whack them across the back of the head with a penalty every time they make a tiny mistake. Mm. And, and what made the sport great was gladiators going to and beyond the limit, and then they paid consequences. But when, now when they go on beyond the limit, they're like little schoolboys, they get put in the corner and you got a penalty. You're in the penalty box, sit down. I just, I just, it's just, they've, they've got to stop that. They got to bring the racing driver back into it, and let if there's racetrack there, let them use it. 
Well, I, I know that Derek a few years ago they, they brought in this Marshall idea that a, a you know an experienced XF1 driver would come in. Am I using the right word or steward Stuart, or Stuart, steward? Yeah. Steward, sorry, steward. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So you you you've been the driver steward a few times, certainly once yeah. I know of. Yeah. And, and you you obviously weren't in favour of uh, as you as you've just said imposing too too many penalties for relatively minor transgressions. Right, and now and now of course. Now every team is policing every other team. So the steward has his job, but he's pestered because every team that sees an infraction says, we want a penalty against that team there. And guess what that team does the next time it sees this team? You, we want a penalty on him. So now they're just back and forth, just killing each other uh, and, 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 and killing the sport. I'm sorry, yeah, they, let them race. Well, they're the best drivers in the world and you're insulting their intelligence in a way by saying you can't do this. I mean, if you want to run around the outside of another guy, there's a risk element involved, but you're, you're an experienced driver. You know what you're doing. You're taking it on. If it doesn't okay. work, too bad. Listen, listen, if the car isn't on the inside, if you try and run around the outside of a corner, you're going off anyway, yeah. even if there isn't a car on the inside. But listen, let me just tell you something. When Max Verstappen lost his podium position for passing Kimi Raikkonen on the last lap of the U.S. Grand Prix in Texas three or four or five years ago, every American yawned and says, you got to be kidding me. What a bunch of pussies. They're not even allowed race. That, that's a bad taste to put in the American's mouth about what Formula One racing was all about. And, 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 and Max, what did he say when they penalized him? Just walked away. He said, oh, well, that's the rules. It's not the rules. Swing at somebody. Whack them. <laughs> like, uh, like, like, like Irish when you're coming out daily. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say like J James Hunt. He, he felled a few people in his career occasionally, yeah. didn't he, as well? I'd Watkins Glen, I remember one time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great days. Well, well, Derek. Um, just one final question. Going back to the early part of your career, I've got a question about uh, about emerging Irish drivers. I mean, you you were part of an absolutely golden Irish era, really, weren't you? I mean, David Kennedy, Bernard Devaney, yeah. Trevor Templeton, all those guys. I mean, Morris, you, you, you knew all those guys as, as well. I mean, but it's it's not 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 the case these days, though, is it? No, Tommy Byrne, Eddie Irvine, and of course we all followed in the footsteps of John Watson. I mean, Watson was the hero to all of us because you know we saw him you know he, he was the first guy that became an international racing driver and and there isn't the pool of talent over there anymore it certainly doesn't seem to be and i, I don't know why it goes in cycles um you know maybe maybe the distractions are so much these days that the pool is going to be smaller anyway but i mean i mean i'd love to i'd love to think that down the road somewhere there is there is you know, a 12, 13, 14 year old somewhere in Ireland um, who, 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 who has a dream to, you know, to maybe do something like that. Mm. And, you know, maybe some of us could get behind them, but I, I just, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it right now. No, not, 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 not for, for the present. Talking about, talking about Ireland, Derek, I'm really impressed. You haven't lost your accent at all. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's talking to us, it's brought. I'm faking it. I'm faking it for you. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, in television broadcasting, like when I lived in England, I lost a bit of it because you sort of bend, so people didn't say to you, "What did you say?" Mm -hmm. And then I come to America, and you bend a little bit. Um, but uh, my significant other is from Ireland, 
and sort of that sort of straightens you out a little bit. All right. Um, yeah. So you have to sort of keep you have to sort of keep the roots there. Good for you. Keep it up. Did you finish that point of Guinness yet? Yeah, nearly. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> gonna go get Nolan in a minute. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, maybe that's a good a, a good note on which to, uh, to 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 wrap up. We've gone gone just over the hour, so um, okay. thanks uh, very much indeed, Derek. It's been highly entertaining. Thank you very much indeed, Morris, as well for uh, your uh, questioning and your your, your insight. And uh, thanks very much to all of the uh, the participants there. I see various people in the comments are uh, thanking us for the uh, for for the event this evening. So um, yeah, very entertaining, Derek. So we'll you you and me and Morris will stay on a little while, but as the the delegates will gra gradually leave now as 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 the okay. event ends. Okay. And thanks for everybody at Brooklands for arranging this because this is, I mean, this is, this is, this is great. Uh, I mean, we, you know, you almost have your own live television show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, know absolutely, and your all your experiences are co com coming through. I'm getting, we're getting lots of great sessions. Brilliant. Thank you, Brooklands and Derek. Can't wait for the next one. So lots of comments like that appearing in the box, Derek. So um, great. thank you very we'll much. Do, we'll do it again. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, it uh, really gives us a taste for uh, wanting to come to see the Indy 500 live, actually, uh, Derek. So uh, that's absolutely top. Of our... Have you been to the Indy 500, Morris? I know you've been to Indy car racing. Have you been to the actual 500? Not, I've never been to my... Have you not? My great shame, no. I've never been to the 500. The reason I didn't go the, re the year that I would have gone was Mansell 93. And I, yeah. was, I was so fed up with the British press and I knew they were going en masse. And they were crawling all over him, and I could. It was sick. And I said, "I'm going to Milwaukee the next week." Yeah, that's yeah, far better. They yeah, and all the people yeah. just buggered off, and I yeah, went to yeah, Milwaukee yeah. and loved yeah. it, loved yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And but I, I, and I thought I'd get to Indy next year, and I never did. So I do right. regret it very much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, obviously, having been for the Grand Prix, I've seen the IMS and just gone, "Oh my God, I can imagine this when it's a yeah. capacity, what it yeah. must be like," you know. And, and this year they they said it was restricted to 135,000 people. It yeah. looked to me as if there was 200,000 people there. Really? I mean, it looked packed. Yeah, it was yeah. great. It was great. I must I must tell you, the, talking about the IMS, uh, you know, when you look back in your life and the various little little highlights you've had, and you've talked about it very very clearly there and very nicely about so many different things. One of the things that I will never forget ever was the 2001 U.S. Grand Prix at the IMS. Yeah. which was 17 days after September 11. Yeah. The first public gathering in yeah. the United States since then. Yeah. And it was one of the most emotional days I think I've ever spent at a racetrack. Yeah. Yeah. Forget the racing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Being there that day. Yeah, yeah. The pre-race ceremonies oh. are the best in the world. It's amazing. They had the the choir singing and all. Oh yeah. my God, the hair yeah. is standing up. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. do now actually yeah. as we talk about it. You know, just. I love that part of indie all the time. Yeah, yeah. love it. Yeah. I can see why. Yeah, yeah. I can see yeah. why. No, yeah. it's, it's great. I can. Yeah, I will get there. I will get there, and I love yeah. it. Indie car racing is brilliant. It's it's so good. It is because it they're is. passing. They're yeah. Overtaking. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember, do you remember overtaking? That. Remember overtaking <laughs> Formula One? You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, DD DRS for God's sake, they've got to get rid of that. That's a joke. But they just go boom, and there's yeah. no for for me overtaking has to be on the edge. You yeah, know? yeah, but you but you be over the track limits. Oh, sorry, <laughs> you can't do it. 
Yeah, but yeah. you know, again, going back to my comment earlier on, people say oh, they're just going round and round. But I mean, Helio Castroneves, that pass that he did for for the lead, I mean, that was just fantastic. Dropping down on on the inside, completely yeah. caught him napping, took the lead. I mean, that that was that was a fantastic pass. Yeah. He yeah. won the race for him, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, fellas. So well, well, we said we said what what normally happens in these, Derek, when we and Morris, when, when we wrap up, I see the, the participant numbers sort of drop away down. Everybody, everybody signs off, but I think everybody's been sitting still on, still listening to hear us sort of the post show chat. I think they're enjoying that huh? as much as the the actual main chat. So everybody's <laughs> still on there listening to us. So uh, I think what we'll have to do is just take an executive decision, and uh, we'll just have to uh, wrap it up then, Tim. Okay. Well, okay. uh, yeah, th- thanks, Tim, very much. And thanks, Brooklyn's, because it's been, oh, as always, uh, Harry, as you know, the Brooklyn stuff is fantastic. And fair, fair praise to the Brooklyn's for doing this. It's great. Yeah, really exactly. And TD, to see you again, marvellous. Lots of good <laughs> memories. It's brilliant. I'm and still I'm alive. You haven't lost a gift to the gab, you old bugger. I'm still alive. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank, th- thanks very much, everybody. Speak to you all soon. Okay. Thanks, you- Marcy. Thanks, Harry. Thank you, Harry. Okay. See you now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.